I am only going to be able to reach so many people without money. And I need to earn good money so that I can reinvest that money so that I can affect more people. Welcome, everybody. This is For the Love of Money, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success by sharing the tools, tips, and stories of those who have already made it. My name is Chris Harder, and each week I will bring you incredible guests in order to prove that when good people make good money, they do great things. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another incredible episode of For the Love of Money. I'm sitting down with a friend of mine named Michael Dash. Now, Michael has an incredible story of addiction. Addiction to drugs, addiction to alcohol, addiction to gambling, addiction to money, addiction to every high that you could possibly chase. But he's now turned it into an incredible story of contribution and leading a beautiful life. I mean, when you get to sit down and talk to Michael, you realize just how special of an individual he is. And so, of course, we're going to talk about his rock bottom. Then we're going to talk about what saved him from it. And we're going to dissect all of the lessons from it that actually apply to your life as well. And related to his and your money mindset journey, during all this, we tell his story of how he went from craving millions, literally being addicted to money, to then no longer wanting money. I mean, literally went the opposite direction thinking it was bad to now realizing it's neither good or bad, but its real place is as a tool for him to get his message out there to everybody who needs it. You see, once again, when good people make good money, they do great things. That's money's purpose. Now, Michael has built companies, sold companies, been there, done that as an entrepreneur, and he has tons of advice to share with you. And matter of fact, he's put all of that into his brand new book called Chasing the High for you to learn from. Now, I personally met Michael and we formed our friendship in a mastermind that I belong to, a really high level one for people making multiple, multiple, multiple seven and eight figures. And of course, I practice what I preach. Masterminds really are truly the fastest way to double or triple your business that I've ever found. But the problem is this, most of them The good ones anyways are unaffordable to entry level or early stage entrepreneurs. Or I'm going to be honest, they're garbage online only programs where you're just meeting on Zoom or something like that, masquerading as masterminds. Well, my wife, Lori, and I fixed that once and for all. You see, we created Fast Foundations Mastermind exactly for early stages and entry level entrepreneurs who make less than $499,000 a year. So everywhere from zero, like I've got my idea and I'm ready to take action all the way up to $499,000 a year. And get this, we priced it better than most of all of those online fake masterminds that I just referenced. So if you're an entrepreneur and you want to be personally mentored by Lori and I and our team and all of our celebrity entrepreneur entrepreneur friends in person and also online and also through a video library that we created for it and in a multitude of other ways, then go check it out right away at fastfoundations.com. Now here's the catch. The last class, because it's five months long, the last class loved it so much, over half of them already signed up for this one right away. So it's already half filled up. So you're going to have to hurry over to fastfoundations.com, check it out, see if it's for you and claim your spot right away because it starts in August coming up and the spots are going quickly. So as soon as this episode is done, as soon as you are done learning and being blessed by all this incredible knowledge by Mr. Michael Dash, 
then make sure you head over to fastfoundations.com. Check it out and grab your spot because we cannot wait to mentor you and get you to your goals. Michael Dash, my friend, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. How are you, Chris? I'm good. I love having you on the show. It's been a while that you and I have been meaning to connect. And for everybody out there listening, Michael and I are in a mastermind together. We're in the Lewis House Mastermind together. And he is one of the coolest, most interesting dudes ever. So I know that this episode is going to be like just awesome and full of good stuff. Well, thank you for that. You are a bad man yourself in a good way. <laughs> all right. So listen, I'm going to start with rapid fire. I start all of my guests with rapid fire. It's a fun way to warm you up, warm the guests up. And if something is really good and we want to circle back around, then we'll do that. Sound good? Sounds great. All right, buddy. Uh, easy question. Where'd you grow up? Park Ridge, New Jersey. Northern yeah. New Jersey. Where do you live now? I live in Redondo Beach, California. We're so spoiled, aren't we? We are spoiled. Favorite quote? My favorite quote. Wow, that's a good one. It would probably be a quote that uh, I got from my father. And it's just very simple that I use now. Don't make emotional decisions. Oh, that's a good quote and good advice. What's one of your superpowers? I am a, a super connector. Oh, and that is so, such a valuable one to have. What's one of your favorite books? The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Yeah, it's a good one. What's one thing you're challenged by right now? Launching my, basically transitioning my 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 life completely from uh, being a business owner for eleven years of a staffing company into uh, working with entrepreneurs and business leaders who are dealing with addictive and compulsive behaviors. So a complete shift. And man, we are totally going to get into that. A couple more. What is something that you have done recently that's generous? So I volunteered. For years with Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And, you know, I've raised over $100,000 for them over the years and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. And it, it, I'm going to take recently and extend it to the last two years. Man, I love that. Two more. What's one of your all time favorite accomplishments so far? Probably, uh, well, I ran four marathons. I was very proud of that. But the biggest accomplishment uh, I feel was settling a six year lawsuit and putting my ego aside and realizing. At the end of the day, nobody cares if I won or lost this lawsuit. Move on with your life. Oh, man. I love that. And last but not least, what are you grateful for today? I'm grateful for everything. I mean, the air I'm breathing, and I know that's uh, you know a little she-she, but uh, I'm grateful every day to be able to live where I live, do what I do, to be able to tr have the opportunity to completely transition careers in the middle uh, of my life, I'm I'm extremely grateful for. All right, so let's use that as a springboard to get into the deeper stuff. Um, and when you tell everybody that you're in transition, I want to kind of set the stage because your story is so freaking good. You know, on the outside, you had it all, what people would consider successful. And on the inside, I'm going to use my words, it probably felt a little bit like a runaway train. So let's go back to really frame the company you bought, the company you sold, and what was going on in your life at that time? Sure. So about 12 years ago, I moved from New York City to Salt Lake City, Utah. Big shift, obviously. Uh, I followed a business opportunity and started a technology recruiting slash staffing company with my ex-business partner. We built that company up. And within five years, we were doing $5.5 in revenue, had you know three offices, about 40 employees. I bought her out at that time. We had different visions. And 
immediately after within six months, I felt she violated our contract. So I bought her out for 1.35 million, a million up front and owed her 350. And after I felt she violated the contract, I withheld the first payment and told her I was doing an investigation and she slapped me with a lawsuit. Oof, messy. Yeah. So that started what ended up being a six-year legal battle with her. It was all over 350K and I spent over 800,000 on the lawyers themselves. Does that sound funny when you say that out loud, like big picture? It was the whole argument was over just 350 grand, but you spent hundreds of thousands of dollars more and six years of like stress and wasted time. You you couldn't have said it any better. It was, you know, most of my problems have been self-inflicted. Oh, wait, let me step back. All of my problems have been (laughs) self-inflicted. So That goes um, for all of us, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I take full responsibility for my action as part of it. Obviously, you know, we both had huge egos and we both hated each other at that point. I wanted to continue to grow the company. She was fine with where the company was. She was working less. I was working more. It was kind of a disaster. She ended up like having an affair with a director of uh, mine in India uh, without me knowing. And so when I bought the company, I inherited this guy in the India office and they all had loyalty to her because I had never actually met that office in person. She had gone over there like four or five times. Oh, man. So... Uh, my my business just started tanking after I paid a million dollars. And at the time, I didn't have a million dollars. I had about half of it saved from what I had earned and I borrowed the other half. So I was completely stressed for the and for the next six years. And, and at the time, I was expanding. So I like was expanding back into New York. So Salt Lake City, New York, India, I had these offices. And I, I was stressed to the gills trying to drive every deal make sure like all over my employees, like a complete jerk. I was not a good boss for the majority of the time I was leading the company. And my ego drove it. And at the time I was addicted to Adderall and Adderall drove it. And and it just, I got in wars with my lawyers. I mean, we tried to fire each other. <laughs> it's amazing. Now you brought up being addicted to Adderall. You've had a handful of addictions. Is that right? It is. Would you mind sharing them with us? Sure. I mean, it started with gambling when I was 11 years old. I was introduced to gambling by my uncle at Thanksgiving dinner. I won the first bet I ever made and I was off to the races. And that started a 20-year gambling addiction. You know, I'm the son of an entrepreneur. So I was working for my dad when I was young in his warehouse and all the guys there gambled. So I was 13, 14, 15. They're taking bets for me. They're bringing me to the racetrack in Jersey. My little league coach was a bookie. Yeah, that's wow. how we do things in Jersey. That's amazing. You were bound. <laughs> you're bound to be a gambler. Okay, what else were you addicted to? Yeah, and then I started. Then I became a bookie in college. And then when I went to college, I really in high school was you know kind of a clean cut kid. You know, B student, three sports, president of student council. Went to a big college. My roommate in college, true story, shot with a three fifty seven magnum by his ex girlfriend, blew out his tricep. When I came back from spring break, he had all these pills lined up on the desk on his draw. And I was just like, what's that? And he's like, oh, you should try this one. This is great. I tried it. What's this one? Oh, it'll actually take the edge off of the one you just took. Take a little bit of that. It'll make you feel even better. And it was just on and on and on. And it ended up really being addicted. I I ended up being addicted to Coke and, and pot. So after I graduated college in New York City, cocaine is everywhere. You're hand, you ha- hang out in the financial services you know, sector, mm-hmm. you're going to find coke everywhere. We're at the clubs, we're doing coke. And you know, I had gambled for so long that gambling wasn't a high enough. 
Like I would just gamble and to feel normal, but I would need to do the Coke with the gambling and mix them to really get that high that I really wanted. So, and then obviously to come down at night, I would have to smoke a ton of pot. So this is a vicious cycle that I was in for years. This is crazy. While you're going through this lawsuit trying to grow the business, is that the same time? Well, the lawsuit came a little bit later. Okay. Um, this was when I was building up my own career in New York City, you know, and I built up a $4 million book of business working for another staffing company. Uh, but I was always able to maintain my responsibilities at my job because it meant like I was a high performer. I wanted to kick ass. I had a big ego. I was arrogant and I was good at sales. So I wanted to always, and I knew I needed money to gamble and to buy Coke and to buy... I needed money for all this stuff. So I always, you know, did not let any of the addictions interfere with my work. When you went on to build the staffing business, were you sober by then? So uh, I had stopped gambling and I'm actually 14 years clean as of last week. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's been eight years since I did Coke. And um, however, I just transferred the addictions. And, you know, I was still smoking pot and I discovered Adderall when I moved to Utah. I didn't really know about Adderall before. And Adderall, you would think that Adderall sounds the least uh, damaging of the others I mentioned, but it was actually the most damaging for me. Wow. Why is that? Because Adderall, I was taking every single day and I would go into my office and I would open my desk drawer and that's where I kept all my Adderall. So I would pop a 20 to 30 milligram of Adderall after drinking a huge coffee and I would be fired up. Like I just, it's basically like cocaine in a pill for me. And I really, when I look back on it, it fueled the emotion that I put into the lawsuit. It fueled the emotion and the relationship that I had with my legal team. And it fueled how I treated my employees. I would snap real quickly. If they screwed a deal up, I would not work with them with and lead with empathy and lead by mentoring them and what they could learn about what happened in the deal. I would lead from a place of arrogance, correction, and like, how dare you lose that deal for us? Because all I was thinking is I have to pay these lawyer bills. Oh my God. Okay. I want to make sure I got the timeline straight here. So while you were working in New York is when you started to become addicted to all these things such as Coke and whatnot. The last thing you were addicted to was Adderall. And this was during building your new business in Utah. Do I have that right? Yeah, I just stopped Adderall a year ago. Okay. So I, I started gambling when I was 11. So I was addicted to that all through growing up. Cocaine started in college and went all through New York City. So you mentioned in there that you kept trading addictions. Have you once again traded these addictions that society labels as bad or damaging for something else that might be more productive? Or how does that work now? Yeah. So um, besides coffee... um, (laughs) (laughs) You and me both. Yeah. I have a chapter in the book. It's called The Habit of Habit Making. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's extremely important that we all build habits and have strong habits around us. But the whole goal in life is to continue to evolve as people, as not only you know for our families, for our businesses, for, for everything. So as we evolve, the, the habits, even if they're positive that we had five years ago, might still not resonate with us as the evolution of our life has taken place. So it's important to tap for me 
what I found is tapping into my curiosity and trying things, new things that I might have had preconceived notions about before because the people I was around would tell me, you know, those people are weird. That's shishi nonsense. That's BS. Don't even waste your time. They're scamming you out of money. And, you know, so, and I relate those things to people with like that talk about energy, that talk about flow, that talk about uh, meditation. I used to have this attitude towards all of them that they're weird, that they're going to try to scam me out of money, that's a shishi nonsense, that they're not in touch with the realities of life. And I never gave any of that stuff a chance until I did. So, and when I did, it transformed my entire mindset and my opinion on them, and they became part of my new habits. Is it fair to say, and I'm really searching for the answer here, are we always trading addictions or is there a way to stop being addicted to things? Or in your case, are you addicted to being open to new things and trying new things now? I don't think we need to be addicted. I think what I, this, it's all about how you frame it, first of all, right? You could frame it any way you want in your mind. Remember, I mean, our minds are the most powerful things and they're going to convince us one way or the other of anything we want to be convinced of. So for me, I don't look at like addiction I don't look at it as addiction and I don't look the word happiness. If I can just connect these two. Okay. I don't believe in that word happiness. I believe in the word fulfillment. And I believe we all have buckets in our life that we want to fill a certain level, right? We have the entrepreneurship or work bucket. We have the family bucket, the intimacy, intimacy bucket, the health bucket, the physical you know, bucket, the travel bucket. We have all these different buckets. And for me, I try to fill halfway all these buckets every single week, a little, you know, as close to halfway as possible. And when I'm able to do that, then that to me equals fulfillment. Mm. So I can fill all these buckets and make complete the fulfillment cycle for me. So that, you know, when I frame it that way, I don't think of any one of those as being addictive because I am trying to maintain, you know, a lot of people like to use the word balance. I don't really like that word, but whatever. Uh, in the, for, for the sake of this conversation, you could interchange balance for that. But if we are only filling two of those buckets, then eventually we're going to burn out. And we're not going to be happy about something in our life. And most likely, it's going to be about ourselves. This is a really great analogy, by the way, a really good visual so that we can kind of take a look at the other parts of our life. I would say I'm probably addicted to chasing accomplishment and addicted to get, you know, getting the next hurdle, the next whatever, um, addicted to working and definitely addicted to working out because all those things feel like progress. And I think that feeling of progress is really what feeds me. So should somebody like me, you know, sit down and really examine those things? And you know, what what kind of questions should I be asking myself? Well, it, it comes down to what are the most important things in your life, number one, and what is sustainable, number two, right? Eventually, I'm sure you want to have a family and everything. Is the life you're living now going to be sustainable for the life that you have then? At some point, you're going to have to transition off some of those things. And that doesn't mean you don't go balls to the wall uh, working out every day, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you could work out every day, but there's a difference between working out every day for two hours versus putting 45 minutes in. You can get the same amount accomplished in 45 minutes as you can in two hours. There's a difference between working harder and working smarter. You know, I was, I grew up in a place where my father worked harder. So that's all I knew. 
He was the first one in and the last one out. And that's what I knew. So that's what I did. I wish I did it different though. I would never like tell anybody, you need to work harder to get ahead. I would tell people, no, the work smarter idea is a great idea. <laughs> Try to incorporate it. Like be hyper aware of it and make that the intention, not just like muscling everything out. Exactly. You know, I'm a hard, it, it takes me extra time to learn. Okay. So <laughs> I you- learned the hard way. Other people don't have to. That's why I kind of wrote this book. That's why I'm speaking out about it. Because, you know, some of the things that I've been through, I feel like if I had surrounded myself with more positive people, like-minded people, more tribes like our tribe, then I would have been, uh, I would have had different ways to approach the challenges that I approached. And I would have definitely uh, incorporated different uh, a different mindset um, before, you know, going down the path I did. So I guess here's where I was steering this whole thing. You know, when I mentioned my workload and, and and you know the dopamine hits I get from accomplishment, and when I asked you about your addictions and uh, the building and selling of your company, here's where I was trying to kind of bring all of this to a crescendo too, and that was this: you reached a point where you were completely burnt out. It was unsustainable, and you just wanted to run the other way. Is that right? Bingo. And is this when you sold your company? Yes. So I settled my lawsuit and I knew I couldn't sell the company without settling the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. So, and the ironic thing about the whole, about all of it is after six years, we went to trial and I actually, after the 350, the, the jury ruled that I owed her like 120, but the, our, our attorneys couldn't agree on attorney fees for eight more months. Asinine. Asinine. For okay. eight more months. But here's and I was just like, dude, and she was threatening to appeal, which could have been attacked another year onto it. I was like, look, like my life is oh, like I cannot do this anymore because it was controlling everything in my life. And I also the the business itself, I, I lost fulfillment in uh, like finding a hundred thousand dollar software engineer, a hundred twenty thousand dollar job, because yeah. that's what I did. Like it just didn't do anything for me anymore. I wanted to make a bigger impact on people. So that combination, and I was completely burnt out, burnt out with my lawyers, burnt out with you know, the lawsuit burnt out with my business, burnt out with my employees and, and really burnt out with myself. So what'd you do? Just run away? Just shut everything down? Like what was next? I settled the lawsuit and sold the company in the same week. <laughs> That's a big week. And how long did you take off? How long did you just say, F it, I'm going to sit on the beach in Redondo Beach? Well, I, I didn't. Uh, I, I was writing a book. So I knew I was getting out of the company. So I said, I'm going to write a book and this book will serve as my transition out of the company. So when I sold the company, I had a six-month contract to transition the company over to the new owners. I went to Bali. I stayed in Bali for two months finishing the book. I, finished, I, I did the six months and then I moved to Redondo. And then I started basically building out this this new program that I'm putting together um, called Fate that I mentioned before. Okay. I love that you wrote this book. It's called Chasing the High. And you and I have talked about it quite a bit. I've literally been watching you develop the book itself and and the marketing plan and the whole nine years because we've been in this mastermind together. So tell us about the book, Chasing the High. Yeah. So the book is basically takes you through my mindset as I go through addiction, lawsuits, you know, finding flow. Again, which is something I would have laughed at if I heard myself say, you know, a couple of years ago, and my friends from New York still laugh at me. But that's because <laughs> I laugh with them now. <laughs> uh, and, you know, finding flow and then 
really adopting a new mindset of how I made decisions, like uh, basing decisions in my life based on my intuition and and not based on like overthinking. I used to overthink everything. I would I was one of those people who had decision fatigue. I would sit with decisions over and over and over and play out every single aspect of what might happen. Here, you'll like this one, Chris. I listen before I sold the company when I was in this lawsuit, I thought what's the worst case scenario that could happen? Okay, I could lose the lawsuit and I would have to go bankrupt. Okay, so I started taking out $9,999 withdrawals because the government doesn't track it if it's under 10 grand Mm -hmm. from the bank every week for about two months. I took all this cash and I found a bank that was not regulated by the FCC, by the government, not the FCC, sorry, by the government, okay? And there's like five in America that are like from Indian reservations and their banks and you don't have to regulate anything. One is in San Francisco. I took about 80 grand onto a plane with me, flew from Salt Lake City to San Francisco just to stash this money in a safety deposit box at that bank that nobody could track. Because worst case scenario, I lose the lawsuit and go bankrupt. At least I have 80 grand somewhere. That is insane. That is that That is nuts. Crazy. And it, and it all goes back to the what ifs, like how much time we spend on the what ifs in our lives that 99% of the time, they never happen. I know. Isn't that nuts? We drive ourselves in. We literally make ourselves sick, physically sick from stress over things that never happen. And, and look how sick that behavior I just described was. So how do you feel today? compared to this pinnacle moment where everything was just spiraling out of control. And what would you say is the single greatest shift you made to feel the way you do today? So I feel a lot lighter today. I felt extremely heavy. I, you know, I had all these things that were weighing me down. And even like, you know, I thought accumulation was the way to go. I had to accumulate more and more and more. So I bought these houses. So I had like four houses and I was renting those out. And then I just got so sick of like dealing with all of it. And I was like disgusted. And again, thought I was going to go bankrupt. So I was trying to take home equity lines and take money out and take, I mean, it gets even sicker than what I described, but for the sake of, of moving forward, um, what, what what helped me transition the most was again going to Bali and listening to these two people talk about flow and dropping my ego and my resistance to what they were saying and saying you know what let me hear them out I'm gonna take their course it's a thousand dollar course Flow Consciousness Institute if anybody's interested and I took their course and we went through this whole process of clearing out our limiting beliefs where we're doing something called tapping I don't know if you're familiar yeah, with absolutely. That. So you're familiar with tapping yep. and like this EDMR, EEMR, I forget what it was called. Mm-hmm. But you're moving your eyes back and forth from right to left while you're tapping and you're clearing these limiting beliefs like change is difficult would be a limiting belief. And then you're putting in positive beliefs like the opposite, which would be change is easy. And these, uh, I thought it was weird as, weird as could be. I'm like, this is weird. This is what my friends warned me about. <laughs> but I started doing it. And it actually started shifting. My actual chemistry, I firmly believe, started shifting. The energy around me started shifting. I was much more positive and I was manifesting things in my life. And I never used or said the word manifestation before I met these people. Like it wasn't in my vocabulary. Synchronicities that they would point out all over the place, didn't even know what that word meant. But now I was seeing them right in front of me. And that shift 
is what really changed everything for me. And that goes back to what I call tapping into our power of curiosity and being curious about other activities that we may have previously you know, had a negative thought about, but we actually shouldn't have any thought about it because we've never actually tried it ourselves. How does it feel to be such a open individual now compared to being so closed off and judgmental in the past? It, it feels it feels great. I mean, I'm an open book, and you know, it's. Uh, I mean, it, it it's great when you don't have to hide anymore. Yeah. It's great when you're not running from work to go back to your apartment to smoke weed and eat a pound of sushi and watch mm-hmm. two hours of reality television. I know, very embarrassing. <laughs> Although you did just make me hungry for sushi. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, do like. There is a huge problem in our culture today in isolation, people isolating themselves when, you know, because technology is the way it is now, people sitting on social media, addicted to social media, addicted to how many likes they're going to get by their, their posts they spent an hour writing. Look, oh. I still have some of that, you yeah. know? Yeah. I, I was just going to say, do addictions pop? When you said that, I was like, oh, wait, that's me too. But we don't even realize our addictions sometimes until somebody points it out and you're like, oh, shit, that's me too. So yeah, you being someone who's so conscious about your past addictions, do you find them ever creeping up again? And then how do you squash them? Oh yeah, yeah, the social media one, the like the phone, the like checking your phone, like rolling over in bed and checking your phone. So how do you squash them? Put the phone in the other room. So no matter what it is, you're saying create a barrier to make it tougher. Yes, roadblocks. That's what we called it when I went to Gamblers Anonymous. Like I couldn't stop gambling on my computer. Mm-hmm. So I found this technology called Gamblock. I put it on the computer. Every time I would try to log on to a gambling website, it would shut the computer down completely. Oh, wow. So that's a roadblock. So the say, you know, a roadblock would be taking your phone, putting it in the kitchen. Like, do you really need your phone next to you in bed? Like there all there were things years ago called alarm clocks. <laughs> the kids know nothing about those things. <laughs> They're like ten dollars. The kids know like, nothing about those things. Nothing about them. Nothing about them. They don't know about newspapers either. One of the things I was most excited to ask you about is in your book, you have a chapter. And this is something that you and I have talked about. You know, the audience won't know this, but you and I have talked about this so much when we get together. Your feeling about money from when you used to chase money to then when you were like almost repelled by money to now having this, I don't want to say struggle, but realization of, wait a minute, I don't want to control me, but I also know that I need an excess amount of it to do the things I want to do in life. So you have a chapter titled, What is Money Anyway? What's your answer to that? My answer is that money is a means to an end. It is not the end. Explain a little bit more. So I always, I envisioned growing up based on, you know, my father was middle-class. So based on the the living we had, but more or less the media and everything and kind of this dramatization in the movies that if I had money, I would get the houses, the mansions, the cars, the pinstripe suits, the best watches, the girls, the boats. I would tell people, I'm dead serious. You could ask anybody in New York that I was friends with. I would tell them, I'm going to work till I'm 50 years old. Then I'm going to retire. I'm going to get a yacht. I'm going to sail around the world. And I'm going to have women fanning me with huge leaves. <laughs> how, do you like, feel, how do you feel hearing that out loud now? Like, who was that person? Yeah. And like, what was he on? But I know what he was on because it was me. Yeah. That's crazy. And so I always looked at it as an end. Like once I get this, then I'll be happy. Once I get this, then I'll be 
you know, doing X, Y, and Z. Exactly. So when I say money is a uh, is not the end, it's it's more of a mean, right? Like I know now, and then this, sorry to skip around here, but then as I went through the lawsuit and everything, I was just disgusted with money because I had millions. I'm the guy who had millions and lost millions. That yeah. that's me. Yeah. I don't have millions anymore, but yeah. I did, and I was miserable when I had it, and I'm much more fulfilled now. However, to transition, I know now in building this new business where I am going to be mentoring other entrepreneurs and business owners who are dealing with addictive and compulsive behaviors, I am only going to be able to reach so many people without money. Yeah, that's true. And I need to earn good money so that I can reinvest that money so that I can affect more people. Because ideally, what I'd like to do is I'd like to hire people, certify them, and let them teach other people as well. And my goal, my BHAG, which uh, I know you know what the BHAG is, right? Yep. Big, hairy, audacious goal. Yeah. My BHAG is to change 1 million entrepreneur and business leaders' lives positively in the next five years who are dealing with addictive or compulsive behaviors. And that's a noble cause. And that's going to take a lot of money to reach them, just like you said. 100%. And I've, I went from the, at the beginning of this year, oh, screw money. You know, I'm not doing anything for money uh, to you know, a couple months later realizing, okay, I got that out of my system. All right. I need money. Okay, N- not just because yeah, I want to live comfortably, but I don't need to live comfortably. I could live, you know, with with very basic stuff. Uh, it would be nice to to live, you know, a, a grandiose life, but it's not necessary for me. But it is necessary to impact others. I just changed my whole career. I worked twenty years in the staffing industry. All my contacts are there. Mm-hmm. Everybody's there. You know, it would be very easy for me to go and do something uh, that was parallel to that industry and automatically just be loaded with business. Yeah, do it just for the money, right? Yeah, I would have been doing it for the money. And uh, so I know now that my challenge and my struggle in building this up will be harder and tougher. It'll be a, a steeper climb ahead because I don't have all those contacts in this world. But I know the end goal will have much more meaning and satisfaction to me than... Than girls chasing. fanning you on a yacht. Well, I mean, <laughs> that can be... That has its place, doesn't it? <laughs> no, yeah. of course. Yeah, then, then the money, right? Here, and, and yeah. So, here's what so, I find fascinating. I knew you during this, I'm going to call it middle phase and, and new phase, right? So I didn't know you when you had all the money and I didn't know you when, you when you were going through all the crap. But I knew you earlier this year when you're like, I'm repulsed by money. I don't need money. I don't want money. I was unhappy with money. And I mean, you really were in a space of get this stuff out of my life. Am I, is it fair for me to phrase it that way? Uh, well, I don't know about get this stuff out of my life, but everything else you said, yes. Uh, I just didn't, I was in this mindset, like I am not doing anything for money. That is not the reason why I'm going to do anything. It, I want money to come out of it but it's not going to be the reason. And all the decisions I had made prior to that, the reason I ended up in Utah was over money. Uh, you know, I had a chance to start a business with my best friend in New York or come to Utah with this person I knew a year and start a business with her. She offered me 50%. He offered me 30%. I went to Utah. You went for the money. 
I went for the money. Little did I know I would add 30% of 20 million, not 50% of 5 million. Isn't that funny? But, Isn't that funny? You know, when we make decisions just for the money, we make the wrong decisions, don't we? Absolutely. Do you know how many people, and I'm sure you have come across tons of people like this, maybe, and maybe they're you know, talk to you about possibly coming into your mastermind or or other things, but people who are at their jobs and don't leave their jobs because of money, but they're miserable. Yep. Yep. Isn't that crazy? We're driven by it. So when did you make the shift? I saw the shift in you, but when did you, what was the moment? What was the thing? What was the exact time that you made the shift back to, wait a minute, if I care about this mission, I need excess money. When I started building the platform and started hiring a couple people and then... When it became you know, real. You start seeing money going out and you have none coming in. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that was the sobering, no pun intended, moment yeah. when you realize, wait a second, okay, this is a useful tool. I do need this tool because it's what's going to propel what I care about. How do I pursue this new tool called money or this tool called money in a much healthier way this time? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was, you know, as I was learning more about what I'm trying to do and develop an online presence and, you know, everything behind that, I didn't really know anything about it because I wasn't really online and with my staffing business. And I really didn't have a presence and I didn't know the amount of time and effort and energy it takes. And a lot of people don't. Like they think they could just go online and they'll become famous overnight or whatever, mm-hmm. or they'll blow up overnight. And and that's just not the reality of how it works. And then when you realize how many different tools you need and how much you know they actually cost and everything, and like just to get things to a certain level. And then I, when I wrote a book, you know, I self-published a book. So I paid for it in a sense. Yep. Right. So, you know, and I'm not making, I'm not going to make money back on the book. Nobody ever does. That's not why you write a book. Nope. Right. You write a book to get your presence out there, establish yourself, and try to impact positively for me, impact other people, give them a different way to approach challenges in their life that were similar to mine. So when you see all this money going out, and then, you know, it's not, it wasn't like a sober realization. It was like, yeah, you tried to bury that in your subconscious. Good try. It's right back in your conscious mind now. And let's reframe this and let's focus on how we're going to make the amount of money we need to so that you can hit that BHAG. Is there any fear of becoming addicted to chasing it down again? Yeah, absolutely. And is it just that awareness and then knowing that you have to put these roadblocks in place? Is, Is that where the safety lies? It does, and I think what's it, the consistency, the the habits, right? The, uh, the the evolution of thought and continuing. Like I'm a big, big believer that you have to surround yourself with like-minded people, and you have to have tribes in your life. And I have a lot of tribes in my life that I never had years ago. You know, I have an entrepreneurial tribe, this group called YEC. I have, you know, the mastermind that you and I are in, uh, you know, Lewis Howe's mastermind. I have the Leukemia Lymphoma Society when I want to hit my philanthropic tribe. My travel tribe, I have this unconventional life where we travel all over, expand each other's mindset, and look how we can have impact on other people. And, and those are just four right off the top of my head, and I have others. And 
it's important to have those tribes because and, and to have multiple tribes because at different points in your life, you're going to be challenged in different areas. And you want to be able to have, you know, people that you can lean on and that you can be there for in these different areas. Not one tribe will solve all these challenges. So it's important to seek them out. They're not going to find you. You need to find them. Man, that is such good advice. You mentioned the Leukemia Society that you've raised over $100,000 for. Why do you have such a passion for that? It's really cancer overall. Mm-hmm. And I fell into the Leukemia Society. So there were two two friends in high school. They were in my brother's grade, actually. And they both passed away in their 20s from leukemia. So it hit me really hard. I had uh, entered the New York City to run the New York City Marathon when I, the first year I moved to Utah, and I got selected. So when I moved to Utah, the second day I was here, I walked into a pizza shop and there was this little flyer and I picked it up. And it was for a company, it was for a group called Team and Training, which was run by Leukemia Lymphoma Society. They train you for marathons and you raise money for them, and then they get you entered in a marathon. Well, I was already in the New York City Marathon, but I wanted people to train with. Mm. So I went to a meeting and it immediately hit me when they started telling me the story of these children who were four and five years old hit with leukemia. I mean, four and five years old. And here I'm bitching and moaning that, you know, I'm not getting Wi-Fi in this place. Isn't that wild? That perspective shift? Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So after I went to that meeting, I said, all right, I'm in. So I joined the group. They helped me train. I raised money. And then from that, I did three other... Because obviously, uh, I'm not addicted to anything. I did four marathons in five years. (laughs) Because I'm not addicted to anything. I love how you you framed that. That's awesome. Four four marathons in five years or five marathons in four years? No, four marathons in five years. I had a back surgery in between the third and fourth marathon. But the way my mind was wired, I had to prove to myself that I could run another marathon after I had back surgery. That's amazing. That's amazing. Do you have a favorite moment of giving that stands out to you, being that you've been so generous with the money you've raised and everything? Probably the favorite moment was... I was nominated for the Man of the Year, Woman of the Year fundraising competition here in Utah in 2016, which is a 10-week fundraising blitz. And in that 10 weeks, I was able to raise over... I was able to raise $75,000. And I didn't win. I came in second. Um, The the winner actually had Hodgkin's disease and overcame it. So I'm glad he won. Uh, But that night at the gala, okay, the boy and girl of the year were there. And I knew I wasn't winning. So I bought these because I, I like to have my moment in in the in the limelight. I won't I won't you know sure we all do that. Yeah. So I bought these huge stuffed animals, like huge. I mean, they were like literally like four feet. Um, and I bought one for the boy and one for the girl. And I told the organizers, "Hey, I want to come on stage and give them and surprise them with these." And so when I was able to drag these huge things off, there was like I don't know three hundred people there, and I was able to give them to the boy and girl and the their eyes cuz they didn't even know what they were there for they can't wrap their mind around like all this money being raised and everything they're mm-hmm. just they're just their kids uh, trying to have fun so now they have these this big dog with this floppy ears and everything and the girl was so happy and and the the boy I got this huge shark for and they were so happy and we were dancing and the music was playing and I, I just will never forget that moment. Oh my God, that is so special. I absolutely love that. Do you talk about giving or do you have any type of philanthropic um, 
piece of the book or is it strictly on the addiction and the stories that you went through? No, no, no. I talk about giving. I talk about, you know, raising the money for Leukemia Lymphoma Society uh, because I I raised money and I gave back. And I also, you know, I would take my company once a quarter to feed the homeless. We would cook the food ourselves for 300 homeless women in the women's shelter down here in Salt Lake City, Utah. I actually had a, uh, a policy in my business that I gave an extra two days paid off to anybody who wanted to use it for any volunteer work that they wanted to do. So I, I talk about those things in the book. And you know I talk about the fundraising I did because although I had that great moment that I described to you, the day after the fundraising took place, I was actually woke up completely depressed because I didn't win. Wow. I had just raised $75,000 for in honor of these two kids and you were focused on not winning. Society. And what's that? And you were focused on not winning instead. I was completely upset after the whole dancing and all that stuff. Then they announced the winner. It wasn't me. I went into like a depression. I was completely upset that I didn't win. Not, I wasn't focused on all the good I had just done. I was focused on my ego and not winning because I wanted to be man of the year. Wow. It was, it was, it actually sat with me for two or three days. I remember I didn't even leave my house. Like I was just, I was depressed. How pathetic is that? It's not pathetic because it was real to you at the time and you've grown out of that, wouldn't you say? Yes, yes. So it's just been part no, of your you're journey. You're 100% right. I shouldn't have used the word pathetic, but I, when I look at it back at myself, like my mindset was so short-sighted mm. that I look at that mindset as being that, that word. I'm not even going to repeat it. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so just because I, I've seen how others can have a similar mindset like that, and we're all competitive. We all want to be the best at what we do. Mm. Uh, but there's also opportunity for growth. And after I was able to sit with it for three days, then I started like getting out of that funk and actually, wow, you know what? I'm really proud of what I did. And I'm really proud of all the pe people who supported me because we really had an impact on leukemia and on, on survival and everything like that. Man, I, I love a, a handful of things about you. And one of them is that you're willing to talk about all this in your book. You know, number two is all the valuable stuff that you put in there and that you're teaching and that you're making your platform because so many people need this. Like even I have learned things today. Oh, by the way, one of the things that just downloaded in my head was when you said you used to give your employees two days off extra if they wanted to use it for volunteering, right away I thought to myself, wait, how can I implement something like that for my employees? So like what you're doing is rubbing off on everybody else. And I want you to know like how impactful that is and just how valuable that is. That's awesome. I appreciate those words. I appreciate that. And I would love to hear once you actually put that into action and let me know how that goes. Yeah, for sure, man. So next question, who's the book for? Like who should be buying? Only people who feel like they have an addiction or every entrepreneur or who? No, no. I mean, any entrepreneur and any business leader, because what it talks about is, you know, the mindset that goes in into uh, you know, having a chaotic mind, like having to make decisions every what I felt at least every 15 minutes of the day. 
Yeah. Like I felt like I was making a decision, a big decision, right? Biz, it doesn't have to be an entrepreneur. It could be a business leader who's got a couple divisions under them, right? It could be, it could be any any of those people. Yes, I talk about addiction in the book. So, you know, if somebody's going through addiction, this can be very inspirational for them as well. And it can also be inspirational for that person who's stuck and isolating themselves and wants to change, but doesn't know where to start. Mm. This gives some foundation and some ideas that, that I firmly believe, and I believe in this firmly. I just said that twice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if you take the smallest step, you can make the biggest change. Oh. It's a small step that you need to take. Just take the small step. Don't worry about what's going to come afterwards. Take the small steps because a lot of small steps equal a lot of massive change. Oh, man. I love that. All right. So Chasing the High, where can we get it? It's on Amazon. You can go to chasingthehighbook.com and that'll take you right to the link. And where can we follow and get in uh, contact with you? Yeah, so my website's Michael G. Dash. If, any, if there's anybody listening to this who is uh, a business leader or entrepreneur who's dealing with addictive or compulsive behaviors and wants to address it and do something about it, you know, I put a program together. Just go to my website and join on the free webinar that's going to be kicking off July 1st and it'll be continuous it'll be continuously running so you can sign up for that and you can see when it's running and so forth and you can find me on all the social media platforms uh, m-1 on Instagram and michael-1 on Facebook I love it I love it I love it okay last question and I'm really curious how I should ask you this question I normally ask everybody I say hey give me a reason why people should be unapologetic about their pursuit of success and with you and the whole story of how you were unapologetic about it and how damaging it was. I think I want to change this question for the first time ever, just this one time. Wow. And I think I want to ask you, should people be unapologetic about their pursuit of success? People should only be apologetic for their success if it's at the expense of others. Oh my God. So good. So good. Awesome answer. I love that I was able to, to actually tweak that question, turn around, and you still just dropped like an awesome bomb right there. Michael, listen, number one, it's been a privilege to, be, uh, to get to know you and to start to become your friend. Number two, I love what you're doing. I'm a huge fan of you getting this message out here and, and will help in whatever way I can. And number three, I just want to thank you for taking your time today, for being so vulnerable, for being so honest, and for sharing these stories and these tips because I know that a great big chunk of my listenership is addicted to one or multiple things, whether it's the chasing down their business or the highs or the drugs that are allowing them to do it or who knows what. And so it's a very, very important subject to talk about. And I just want to thank you for coming on and sharing this. Chris Harder, thank you. You are the man. Five stars, like, share, do it all for Chris Harder. <laughs> You're the freaking best, buddy. I appreciate you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, it goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful. And until the next episode, cheers to your success.